Hey everyone, welcome to the podcast, Floyd's Rising. I'm Sabretooth, I collect NFTs for a living, and with me is Kizu, who's a professional art critic. On this podcast, we talk about the business of creating, collecting, and analyzing NFTs. We interview artists, collectors, and other interesting people in the NFT space. Enjoy the show. Welcome everyone to another episode of Floor is Rising with Kizu and myself today. We have Norcal Guy from the podcast Norcal and Show. He's an NFT collector that's joined the NFT scene uh, early this year. And I found it very notable that he's collecting a lot of NFT art across the various Ethereum marketplaces and probably most notably is that he's collecting a lot of sort of newer artists, artists that are not as sort of well-known. Welcome, Lookout Guy, to The Floor is Rising. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm uh, excited to do this. Tell us, how did you get into NFTs? So I've been in crypto for a few years. And I mean, I first remember hearing about like the crypto kitties. But when those was the end of 17 or beginning of 18, I forget. But... I just thought it was a game. I didn't understand why you would pay money for these things. And I mean, it was kind of a game. And my daughter was born late 2018. And it was just a busy year. I mean, I don't have time to to do that. And we also have a business. So I didn't have time to dive in and look. And I just thought it was a JPEG that you're paying money for. <laughs> so I just ignored them for like the last couple of years, actually. Mm-hmm. Kept on hearing about them. And then finally, this past in 2020, the end of 2020, finally started reading some stuff about non-fungible tokens. And then I decided maybe I should do this. There's a lot of people making money in Top Shot. So I'll jump in there first. Interesting. So, so Top Shot was your first sort of NFT project. Yeah. Is there a reason why Top Shot appealed to you? You know, I could use my credit card to buy stuff. I like <laughs> to use my USD and not my crypto if I can. All right, right. Um, so that was part of it. I mean, it was easy to use, has a lot of potential, getting more normies in on it instead of crypto guys. So I thought it had a lot of potential and thought it was a good place to start. It was easy. Could get my some of my friends in on it because they actually you know enjoy sports instead of just looking at currencies. <laughs> the cryptocurrencies all the time. I started off typically with just like, you know, <laughs> as a first time collector, it was, you know, got like something like some cryptocurrency logo stuff, some Pepe stuff that was kind of funny, but it wasn't like official, like Pepe stuff. Mm-hmm. So I started out there and then I like saw, found the generative art uh, with art blocks. Mm-hmm. And that blew my mind because it was all on chain, um, you know, generated live. So I was like, man, this is really impressive. And then I forget who my first one of one was, but having that interaction and talking with the artists and like building a friendship really drove me to like love the one of ones and love that relationship. If you look at your sort of public wallet, I mean, you have a lot of, as you said, generative art, sort of meme art, collectibles as well. I mean, you, you have a lot of that. How do you think that differs from sort of collecting the one-on-one art from your oh. experience and perspective? I mean, I guess the generative is kind of like a one-on-one in a, in a sense. It's a one-on-one of, you know, it's better than a PFP project. Whereas I, I view PFPs as more of a income generator, more for flipping. 
maybe a whole, you know, buy a, a few and then sell most of them and maybe hold one or two afterwards. So that's how I view those is just to make some more Ethereum on the side. My one-on-ones I hold on long-term, not planning on selling them for a while at least. And then the generative art is kind of in between that one-on-one and PFP project. Like I'm not as attached to those. I think they're amazing and I love them, but I, I would be willing to part with them for the right price. Interesting. So your collecting pyramid is sort of the, the, the PFPs down at the bottom, generative art in the middle, and then the, the one-on-one art at the top. Can you talk through like, how did you come to that kind of framework of, of, of collecting? Um, I guess it just is kind of based on um, which ones are easier to sell, which ones I could generate more ETH from if I needed to. Meaning the PFPs are the easiest to sell, followed by the generative. Yeah. And, and yeah. the one-of-ones is, is the hardest to sell, essentially. The, the one-of-ones you feel in the long term will have the highest sort of investment value or the price appreciation. And, and that sort of informs your decision to, to prioritize those at the top of your pyramid. Yeah, I believe so. Like, say, just to mention, maybe like either like Catherine Simar, she, her work, she's in it for the long haul. She's a hard worker. And she's getting involved in the community a lot, it seems like. So I believe she's in it. She's kind of going to be an OG. She gets involved with everyone. I see long-term, it's just appreciating in value. Um, and I guess, yeah, go ahead. I think it echoes some of the opinions I've heard from traditional art collectors that I know who mm. are trying to cross over or they're trying to get their heads around this new value proposition. So some of them do see the appeal of the flippable projects. Some of them don't. Some of them see that it's uh, financially lucrative, but artistically, it's not as impressive, for example. Whereas they're still very much attached. I think you mentioned that you prize the communication that you have with artists. And so being being able to have a dialogue and knowing the artist is going to work hard and, and things like that. I think that's part of the due diligence that traditional collectors have always been used to doing <laughs> the pfp projects i don't think there's there's time put into them but most of these don't have the community to back them to be a long-term thing i mean you see the like the pump and dumps is happening mm-hmm. versus you got the one of one i mean if it's the art that you like and you can talk with the artist you know you can see their history you can see where they're going you can talk to them see what they're how they're motivated what how hard they work you can see their backstory you can gauge if this person is going to be here for the long term or not and if you love it then why and i guess part of the one of one is a lot of them i actually have a physical of it as well mm-hmm. so it's i love it i i can talk with the artist i have a physical if i had to i could sell the nft but I'm in it for the long run. I love the artist. I, I, it's something I'm willing to hold long-term if it goes to zero, I guess, the one of ones. If you were getting in now, I would potentially buy the established PFP projects like a punk right. or an ape. Mm-hmm. And that would be like a, a hedge against your one of ones in a way. Right, right. It's kind of how I would view it. Like I bought some punks in the beginning, expecting them to cover potentially everything else went to zero to still cover uh, and give me some gains. 
This kind of information, like in the traditional art market, is signaled a bit differently. Like, for example, you have the top, so-called top galleries, right? And they, I think for, I guess for the complete layman, it's kind of difficult. But I think for anyone with some familiarity, you can realize that the top galleries have their kind of golden goose or geese. And then sometimes they also represent like less commercial artists, but they like to have that variety because they don't want to be seen as like a purely commercial gallery. And they also want to cultivate the next kind of like generation of maybe more experimental artists or artists that do work that is not super something that you can really speculate on, but it's, it's interesting in a maybe critical or um, different way. And so the way that you're describing you know, these kinds of categories is interesting to me because it seems like within the marketplace for NFTs, if you have that kind of way of looking at it, then the super flippable projects subsidize the your subsidize your love for <laughs> maybe less commercial. Yeah. But yeah. more work, right? So you're you're playing Norcal guys like is like a gallery in a sense. Like you're buying up the yeah. work that you know can support the underdogs in a sense. So you have a balance. And, and I think that's an interesting mindset to have as a collector of, of NFTs, I think. Let me just play devil's advocate here. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the current one-on-one format was that we all sort of collect today on, on Ethereum specifically. It was really created by Super Rare. You know, they they kind of were the first company that sort of put that in this in the space and um, and they were very successful in creating this format, the one-of-one sort of art drop that all the later marketplaces like Foundation makes place known origin. They all sort of copied that mm-hmm. and, and now it's become sort of known as the stand away. But if you look at sort of what crypto art was doing before then, it <clears throat> there was crypto art before, but it didn't really follow this sort of one-on-one art drop. So I would say it's something that was sort of created, but it's not inherently like something that is sort of native to to crypto and what's Ethereum even. And then the second thing that gives me pause is that, you know, if I look in web 2.0 or even web 1.0, the things that tend to succeed long-term are things that are native and not skeuomorphic. And by skeuomorphic, meaning when the internet first came out, most of the ideas were like, we're doing this in the real world. Let's just do it on the internet and all the business ideas that sort of came about then were, were of those kind. But the majority of those didn't really work, right? And even the ones that did work, like for example, Amazon sort of morphed into things that were not really like skeuomorphic. They were just like internet native. And, and now if you look at all the major businesses on the internet are all completely native, like things that are impossible in the real world. And yeah, an argument could be made that, that there's one-on-one sort of NFT is a, is a schemorphic form of art where it's kind of like, you know, we, we, for hundreds of years, we've kind of done this, artists have sort of done paint on canvas. And now we're sort of trying to replicate that in the NFT world. And an argument could be made that that's not going to last because that's not going to be digital to the medium, uh, native to the medium itself. I can see that argument, especially like when you have like art blocks, everything's on chain, you know, it's native to this format. So I, I can definitely see that argument. I guess maybe we do go that way. That's definitely possible. I guess these early one-of-ones or editions, because I also collect editions, will uh, maybe be like the relics of the time. How do you um, look at primary collecting and, and, and secondary collecting, especially of your sort of one-of-ones? Um, it doesn't bother me 
I would prefer to get it on the primary because then I feel like potentially I'm getting a better deal. Mm-hmm. But I know I've how I got in with Brendan North is all well initially was all secondary. I was like saw his work, I loved it, and I was like, why is this person selling this work for like what he bought it for? I'm definitely buying this. So I it doesn't matter to me it, as long as I feel like it's you know fairly priced and not overpriced. I don't mind. How do you determine that? How do you that's determine great, what's, what's, what's fairly priced? That's a great question. Yeah. Uh, man, I guess I do a lot. I mean, look at all other sale, previous sales, if they have any. Of the artist. Um, yeah, of the artist. What if the artist has no sales? What if they're like a... Because you've done a lot of Genesis collecting, right? I guess it's just a gut feeling. I try and see, you know, like, like what is their following? Are they, you know, how big are they? Instagram or... You know, how involved are they? Do they, you know, or how much does their work sell in the in the real world versus online? I guess what what does for like collecting Genesis is is if it was recommended by someone. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, this person just got in NFTs. This is their Genesis. I've been following them for years type thing from like an illustrator or a photographer. You should go check it out. Then I will. And if I think it's, you know, worth the gamble i guess you could say i'll pull the trigger and get it thing is i mean i've looked at more art this past year than i've ever looked at (laughs) art before and a lot you know and every piece you're looking at has a price Mm. and i don't know if you know subconsciously you're like building like okay you can almost rank like hey i if hey i think this piece should be you know about the price about this estimate if if you saw a piece just out of nowhere don't know who them who the artist is or anything. You could, if you've been in it, watching it, you could give a fairly reasonable estimate of what it should sell for. I think basically NFT collectors of, of art mostly are judging it based on the same criteria that crypto token collectors, or sorry, crypto investors are judging <laughs> the, the relative valuations. Because what happens is uh, BTC is valued against gold. This is how BTC people value the Bitcoin, right? Gold has market cap of X. BTC is Y. Y is less than X. It could be X. It's undervalued. Yeah. Ethereum is valued against Bitcoin. Every mm-hmm. single other L1 is valued against Ethereum. And the tokens on top of the each layer one is valued against that layer one. And then the smaller tokens are valued against the bigger tokens. And, and it's it's basically relative comparisons all the way down, right? And so I think in NFTs, right. I'm, I'm seeing kind of the same behavior take place where if you're a primary a cinema 4D sort of artists, 3D render sci-fi, then, you know, you're in luck because basically Beeple is the you know biggest selling NFT artist of all time and he's kind of set records. And, and so mm-hmm. you're like, well, you know, this is pretty close to Beeple and Beeple selling at this. So this, this guy's pretty cheap at this, right? If right, you're right. like an, an artist who's doing sort of cute anime stuff and you're like, well, Searlight just sold something at like 70. So this thing is not bad compared against Searlight. So <laughs> it should, and, and I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think subconsciously, this is, this is what you're doing, right? Who's the top guy? How does it compare to the top guy in this particular demographic? Uh, or this particular sort of niche and then you go and then you're kind of subconsciously making a decision as to what's the likelihood that this guy is going to you know get to whatever level it is that you think they can get to um, Mm -hmm. how much growth they have and yeah it's I'm thinking like everything is basically relative sort of valuations and um, and it's 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 all kind of that crypto relative valuation that I that I think is basically driving the entire crypto and nft market no, I mean, I, I get it. I, I guess I haven't approached it in that way. 
<laughs> yeah, because Beeple's was just outrageous. Not that it wasn't valuable at that much, but it was kind of like an outlier for the time, for sure. It's hard to say. I guess for me, it's the work ethic that makes me willing to invest in someone that has that is up and coming than saying that they're similar to someone just because, I mean, you can have a lot of similar people. And if you don't know any background on them, potentially, it's just like buying a, it's just a gamble. How do you judge work ethic? I guess seeing history, you can talk to them, see, you know, what motivates them. When you talk to them, what topics they bring up or don't bring up, like say like Eric Rubens, photographer, talking with him, he was on a path trying to do professional tennis, didn't get there, um, but he was collegiate playing uh, at a high level. And then he got to engineering, did that for several years. So, I mean, that to me is like, like he has the drive, he has the motivation to go further. Same thing with like uh, Brendan North. He dropped his education that he had just finished and came out to LA, worked for Lyft every, you know, in between his photo shoots until he developed that name. And this was pre-NFT and then started doing the, the actual photography that he really loved. Right. And was just trying to sell prints before NFTs. I want someone that's going to be here for the long term. I want to know that they can put in the gears and they did put in like the time when they were making nothing. Mm. And I guess I was fortunate in the beginning to also buy from without doing due diligence from, you know, some people that were just hopping in to make money. And then they would just hit me up in the DMs like, hey, I made another piece for you. I'm like, come on, make your own work. <laughs> I, you know, I don't cater to me. I want you to make your own work. And if I like it, I'll buy it. It just occurred to me, um, Instagram became this huge channel for art sales in the traditional art world. Well, I guess it would have been maybe six or eight years ago starting. And like you said, it, it changed the dynamics of that relationship entirely because formally the artist would kind of make the work that he or she thought was good or you know suitable. Mm-hmm. And the collectors couldn't be catered to directly in that way. Like it's almost like the, the case that you mentioned, the, the artists weren't making commission work, but they were seeking out feedback beforehand from uh, yeah. a potential collector, right? So then they tailor the work to that collector. And I think previously that uh, line of direct communication didn't exist. It was always mediated by the gallery for, for better or worse. And so mm-hmm. the gallery was the talent spotter, right? And then they would groom the artist and then the artist would make a show and the gallery would invite would invite, would invite his or her uh, network of, of patrons and collectors. And so there was always that, tastemaker role that was being you know whereas now it's like there's no they've been disintermediated obviously but the collector is the tastemaker as well so and the Mm -hmm. artist is like well what do you want like i want you to collect my work so you tell me and you know it's funny that i think it's worth bearing in mind that with the nfts the artists start from that position They, they never had in a sense, some of the artists, they never had an independent practice that they considered creatively the most valuable, but that they were always starting from a, a point of direct conversation with the collector. And that that's, again, for, for better or worse. It's just that it's changed that dynamic. And from the get-go, your, your collector is like a huge input, right, into, uh, into right. your creative space, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I think in this space, I, I don't want to be giving any direction on art for me at least. I don't want to give any direction on that. I, I just like feel like if I bought it, that I liked it. You're doing the right thing. I think where artists need more help is with pricing, which mm-hmm. I'm willing to always give my my thoughts on it to them. Yeah. Whether they follow it or not, that's up to them. But I'm always willing to share it. What mistakes do you see in uh, in NFT pricing right now? Too high, I guess. Most a lot of it. I mean, we. I mean, I know I over. Not that I overpaid, but in a sense, and when the market was hyper active back in like February, March, April, you know, feel like you're getting in late for some reason. And you're like, oh, it's, I'll buy this. I'll buy that. I'll buy that. And then you're like, was it worth that much? Have they sold something for that much before? So yes, there was definitely a lot of high expectations. I potentially, that's why, why it was slow for a little while there. It's just because Stuff was overpaid for. Collectors realized it and waited for pricing to come down, I guess. In a, in a sense, you could view it that way. I think a lot of artists think they can just throw a price on there. I think it's becoming more reasonable now, though. But I mean, if a lot of these new artists should consider their peers as their potential collectors and price accordingly, whether it's additions or a one-on-one. Have you ever um, collected outside of uh, Ethereum, like on, on other platforms? I guess you could say I'm lazy in a sense. I don't want to have another wallet to worry about. I don't want to have to go buy Tezos and transfer it over. Also, I mean, I feel like that marketplace came about because of high gas fees, which should be resolved, you know, in the future. So I feel like potentially it's like a Band-Aid that, will be removed in the in the future. But I think if, you know, if Ethereum is like the gold standard for mm-hmm. NFTs and the reason I feel like another network came along was because of gas and minting fees or bidding fees, you know, to place your bid, you have to pay that fee too. It's going to be resolved when, you know, gas is going to be like next to nothing with Ethereum 2.0 or whatever solutions right. come along. I mean, this is this is interesting, right? Because um, how much of the value of you know Ethereum NFTs is because of the high gas, in a sense? Because you know OpenSea's been on Matic, oh sorry, Polygon for a while, and NFTs on Polygon, other than games, haven't really taken off. Basically, you know, non-game NFTs on 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 Polygon. I think a lot of projects feel that they can't really get traction because no one takes those NFTs seriously, essentially. And, and I'm, I'm just wondering, like, is it because of the high gas fees that sort of infuse the value on the, on the NFT and that, you know, a lower gas L2 for Ethereum, you know, if someone decides to mint there, wouldn't be, you know, taken as seriously? Uh, I've, got a, I've got a half answer to that, I think. Um, <laughs> it seems like it's a let the buyer beware of art that's too cheap. <laughs> and then so for example like take art basel which uh this year just happened in september last month september right even though it's it's usually in june so the, the main event is art basel and of course uh the art there is much higher priced than the art that's at any number of satellite fairs that happen during the same week and they're smaller and more experimental and and there's two types of collectors generally one is like, I only buy from Art Basel, the main fair. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, even though, of course, they get deluged by all the PR people who send them invites to the smaller affairs. And then there's the more kind of indie collector who like, yeah, they'll go to Art Basel, but they also, they actually make it a point to do the rounds at the smaller affairs. And because they want to, to kind of like, they want the feeling of having discovered a slightly less known artist, uh, cheaper and all that. This is over and above the upside thing, right? But I think like for a lot of collectors that quote unquote are a bit lazier, they just would prefer that some of that curation happened for them. So like they want mm-hmm. our Basel to say, well, this is the kind of minimum, you know, they've kind of picked, our Basel has picked the, and they're not, I mean, it's like they say they're lazy, but maybe they're also like, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not sure whether I myself can make that call, uh, the judgment call. And so I leave it to the experts to, to make some of that call for me. Whereas the other kind of collector is like, well, I trust my own judgment to go treasure hunting in the, in the less known uh, platform. Since you've been collecting, um, can, can you share with us some of, like something that you've, that you've realized that you did was a mistake early on that, that um, you kind of now realize that was a mistake or, you know, some, some lessons for, for, for people, I guess, new to the game. Just because other collectors have an artist, um, you should probably still vet that artist. Because I know I bought some pieces from someone and some other well-known collectors did. And that person ended up being a copycat artist of someone that was not in NFTs. So you still got to do your due diligence for the most part, even if there's well-known collectors that have collected someone. I think the person, I thought he had a website, but he ended up not, I don't know, he took it down. It, it just, there wasn't a lot of history that I thought there might've been. I guess history going back before NFTs is always a good thing. Like they just created a Twitter account a couple months ago. That's always makes me a little bit nervous. They have an Instagram that's been around for a few years and they actually have posts on it. Then, you know, that gives me more confidence as well as like, uh, was it ArtStation website for more of the 3D artists and other history? But yeah, it's, I mean, it is hard. It's, I'm not going to lie. I don't, I can't deep dive on everyone all the time. I I don't do image searches. Like they were everyone when that controversy happened, like, oh, why didn't you Google image search? I'm like, I'm not going to Google image search every single thing. I can't, I don't have time. You know, I I, I do a lot of based on recommendation. I mean, and it's hard because this person was in the community, like well-liked. So yeah, it's always hard to judge, but I, I, recommendations are a huge thing for me from other artists and then seeing some sort of history. Awesome. And before we let you go, Nokagai, who is your favorite artist? Ansel Adams in Yosemite. There is like a little shop or a gallery type thing Mm -hmm. of some of his work and you can buy prints and stuff there. And he did some guest instructing at the art center. So I think some of his work is there too. I haven't been I haven't been back to the art center in years, so I forget. But yeah, I would go with him. Black and white photographer. Pretty awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you for joining us on this episode of Floyd's Rising. Uh, thank you very much, Nokal Guy. Yeah, I loved it. Have to do it again. Definitely. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Floyd's Rising. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe, follow, and give us a review on your favorite podcast app. Remember to also follow us on Twitter at Floor is Rising. You can reach out to us, send us a question, and just send us a DM on Twitter at Floor is Rising.